Well, this is the CBF Podcast Conversation. Each week, we're bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking work and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, CBF's podcast host, and this week we have a special Facebook and YouTube Live interview about how QAnon and Christian nationalism are affecting the church. In a few moments, I'll introduce our guest and we'll jump into the conversation. But we do want to let you know that you have the opportunity to present questions to our guest. Um, if you will comment to the right, if you're on Facebook with your questions or if you're on YouTube down below. We need to also tell you about one of our annual sponsors, BSK, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, is hosting its annual Henson Lectures on Monday, March the 1st, from 10.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The E. Glenn Henson Lecture Series started in 2009 and honors the life and work of Dr. E. Glenn Henson by inviting lecturers who share his passions for Christian scholarship in and for the life of the church and the world. This year's lectures will be held virtually and will be free, allowing anyone interested to participate in this highly regarded series. This year's speaker is Dr. Doug, Dr. Doug Weaver, Director of Undergraduate Studies and Professor of Baptist Studies at Baylor University. Dr. Weaver's lectures are titled Holy Spirit Power, Baptist in the Experience of Pentecostalism and Baptist and Charismatic Expression from Sensationism to Carpet Time. Visit bsk.edu backslash Henson for more information. Well, for our guest uh, for this special live conversation, we have Dr. Robert P. Jones. He's a CEO and founder of PRRI and a former associate professor of religious studies at Missouri State University. He's the author of The End of White Christian America and White Too Long. Robert, thank you for joining the conversation. Oh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, for those that aren't familiar with uh, who you are, uh, which I can't imagine that to be so with the two books you've put out and the great work, tell us a little bit more about you and then we'll talk a little bit about PRRI. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm the founder and CEO of PRRI, which stands for Public Religion Research Institute. And we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan uh, organization conducting research at this intersection of religion, culture and politics. Uh, we're located in Washington uh, DC and were founded in 2009. Um, so all of our work is yeah nonpartisan, um, and we are an independent organization um, that's funded uh, through foundation support and individual donations. So in this day and age, where everything uh, feels partisan or everyone doesn't believe there's possibility of partisanship, uh, how do y'all ensure that you're nonpartisan in your work? Yeah, well, you know, I think we work really hard to ask um, balanced questions. I mean, a lot of our work is public opinion survey work. So um, uh, we work very hard to ask questions where we don't have our thumb on the scale one way or the other. We're really trying to get a, a real uh, as best of an objective read on where uh, American public opinion is. Uh, the other thing that we do, I think that's, that's really about accountability um, is that we work uh, very hard to be transparent in, in what we do. So we're, we're actually a, a, a founding charter member of a, a thing called the Transparency Initiative, uh, which was uh, put together by the American Association of Public Opinion Research a few years ago, um, really to bring best practices uh, into the field of public opinion research. So, you know, for every survey we do, for example, um, we publish the entire questionnaire, including the full script of like interviewer instructors, how we randomize questions, what order the questions were asked, exactly what the question order or question wording uh, was, all of which you know really matters. Um, and, and then uh, for uh, the vast majority of our data sets, um, we actually uh, release them into the public uh, domain. So not only can you you know check our uh, uh, question wording, but you can check our math. Um, you know if you want to download the data set and crunch the numbers. Uh, yourself, we, we put about a half a million dollars worth of free public opinion data into the public domain um, every year. I know like every parent says they love all their children equally, um, knowing maybe my mother's watching this and keeping in mind that, you know, she does have three boys and maybe I am her favorite. Um, of all the studies that you've conducted, of all the polls you've done, um, <laughs> maybe what's the most telling? Uh, what's, what's your favorite? Yeah, um, here's a couple. Uh, see, here I am. I'm not going to pick one kid. I'm going to pick a couple. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think there's there's two that stand out. Um, you know, one is is really this the, the one that I really based my most recent book, you know, White Too Long, um, The Legacy of, of White Supremacy in American Christianity 
um, because I, I tried to take up the very difficult task of, of how, and, and our team did, of, of how, how to measure um, attitudes about systemic racism um, in the country, which is a pretty difficult thing to get at. Um, and, um, uh, you know, kind of gratified to say, I think we worked very hard looking at the literature and we're able to kind of put together a set of questions that give us some purchase on, you know, what people's attitudes are around systemic racism uh, in the country. That became the basis of the book um, uh, and kind of allowed me to put a contemporary lens on the history of, um, of kind of white supremacy in the country. The other one I think that that we're actually in the process of um, uh, redoing is a survey we did back in 2013, where we looked at um, people's social relationships, like their closest friendship networks. And um, and we were trying to figure out how diverse uh, they were, right? Um, so how, how what kind of bubbles are we, we still living in? Um, and there we found, um, you know, some really telling data that still gets cited today, even though the survey was done in 2013. Um, for example, that uh, we found that uh, for the average white person, their close friendship networks were more than 90% white. Uh, and that 75% of white Americans had uh, no person of color um, of any kind in their kind of close friendship networks. And that kind of goes a long way to explain, I think, um, you know, how how divided we still are. It, it also held true for um, partisanship and religion, right? That, that Republicans tend to be close friends with Republicans, Democrats tend to be close friends with Democrats, and uh, and, and, and even Protestant Catholics, uh, you know, Protestants still tend to be more uh, uh, kind of close friends with Protestants and Catholics with Catholics. So, but race, religion, um, uh, and, and partisanship, the three things that I think divide Americans the most are all, also driving us into these, um, into these bubbles uh, today. So I'll pick out one of those favorite and then we'll spread rumors among your staff. So uh, for those that um, want to get to know your work a little bit more, uh, we do want to note that we had uh, Robert on the podcast uh, in the fall and uh, he was gracious enough to come back on. So you can find more uh, about um, the program that he runs and his good work there and especially some of his books. But we're here today uh, to talk uh, about uh, two major influencers um, within the church, uh, QAnon and Christian nationalism. And to, to get us to an in-depth conversation about the effects of QAnon and Christian nationalism um, and, and how they're having within the church, I think it'd be helpful to build a framework as to how you would define these terms. So let's start with the easier one, uh, Christian nationalism. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, you know, terms are interesting things um, for what they um, bring into view and what they hide. Um, I'm not a big fan of Christian nationalism as a term by itself because I, I think the, the phenomenon that we're really talking about um, is white Christian nationalism. So I, I, I always want to add another adjective to that term. I, I think it's a helpful term as long as we really remember that what what the the real challenge that we're that we're facing is really about white. Christian nationalism, or the way that Christian nationalism is operationalized inside of uh, white Christian spaces, um, and and uh, so I, I, that's the main thing. And the reason that's important is because I, I think at the at the bottom of it, and I think the term that we we often uh, we when we're, I say this when we're talking in white spaces or white Christian spaces, the term that is harder to talk about is white supremacy, um, and I, I think that is like such an important thing not to dodge. Uh, if we're talking about when we're talking about these phenomenon, because at the end of the day, um, the root thing that we're talking about is in Christian nationalism gets at this in some ways, like a kind of ownership uh, of the country. Uh, but if we really want to get to the, the most powerful form of that, it really has been wrapped up with white supremacy. That is the idea that the country was divinely ordained to be a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant country. Like that's the purest form of the problem as it has manifested itself um, in our history. So I would say like the roots of it are in this idea um, that that white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in particular um, are the are really the designed to be the primary beneficiaries uh, of of the United States and 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 of kind of this kind of cultural concept we talk about when we say America. And for many, uh, their interaction with QAnon or Q has been, um, you know, brief news reports or SNL sketch or even opening monologues from late night host. Um, to the best of your abilities, what is it? <laughs> right. Um, well, is this? I mean, this is one of the challenges. This is a very fuzzy, uh, fuzzy thing. Um, but you know, I mean, there's an anonymous poster 
uh, a person posting on these chat boards, um, 4chan uh, uh, primarily, uh, who calls himself Q um, and, and kind of puts out these prophecies, um, predictions, um, kind of secretive messages. And, and so it is kind of taken on a life of its own, particularly during uh, uh, the last year around, um, around the election. Um, but, you know, what's notable about it, we're on a, a you know, a, we're in a conversation in a kind of evangelical Christian space here. And what's notable about it, though, I think, and, and really where it gets its power is that it borrows uh, from Christian tropes. Um, so it talks about a battle between good and evil, like an ultimate battle between good and evil, where the stakes are really high, uh, right? Well, the stakes could not be higher. It really is about the triumph of good uh, versus evil, um, a very black and white uh, uh, view of things, um, and, and sort of, uh, and then kind of lays that onto our kind of political uh, uh, structures, and and you know, and talks about things like um, a great messianic figure, right, which should feel very familiar to. Um, to, to uh, Christians that, that's going to ultimately come and depose the people who are in power um, and kind of bring in the kingdom and bring in a new order. Um, and that, that, that the work is to kind of usher in that order. So, I mean, for anyone studying Christian apocalyptic movements or messianic trends um, in, in, even in Judaism, I mean, these, these things are not new, right? Um, they're, they're, they're borrowing some very old themes, but they have been kind of melded onto um, our contemporary political um, uh, situation in, in ways that then makes uh, things like uh, storming the Capitol, uh, you know, in, in, in the name of Q and kind of keeping Donald Trump in power as, as, a, as a way to be faithful to God and to kind of fight uh, good versus evil. So it, it really has made um, politics, which in a democracy, right, are never designed to be about uh, ultimate good and ultimate evil—that's compromise. I mean, you know, right? And 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 our political opponents, um, in uh, in a healthy democracy, are not our enemies, right? Uh, they're people we disagree with, and people we hope to agree with on another day. Um, but but it heightens our politics into the and kind of transposes them into this realm of of good and evil. And I, th I think it's why it's been so corrosive, uh, really, to our to our democracy. And to our churches uh, too, because they do it does borrow and kind of even blends in biblical prophecy with, uh, you know, with with these uh, kind of other uh, kinds of um, other other kinds of, of prophecy. What should it tell us about the nature of where we are as a society that people are so willing to trust? Again, the word you know you used was an anonymous source or anonymous poster online that. That we're so willing to trust somebody that we've never seen before, somebody we've never had a personal conversation with, and base so much of our worldview off of these things that are being stated or prophesied. Yeah, I mean, I I think it says that we're in a pretty unhealthy place um, as as a country and and as a as a Christian, you know, it's Christian churches um, as well that have been so ineffective at kind of stamping this down. Um, the you know, I would say that. Uh, uh, I think again to get to the root of it, you know, part part of what's happening, I think, is um, you know the country's going through a great amount of demographic change. Um, I wrote about that in, in my sort of previous book, The End of White Christian America, that that we've we've crossed this boundary um, just in the last decade. So it's very new, really, um, of you know of being a majority white Christian country to one that is no longer a majority white Christian country. And I think crossing that threshold has caused a great deal of anxiety among white Christians, right? Who, who I think really did believe in, um, that the country was designed for them and that they were to be the beneficiaries of the country. And as the country has changed and shifted, not only in its demographics, but in its values, um, uh, it, uh, I think that has caused a great deal of um, vertigo, a kind of cultural vertigo and that creates an opening for this. And I, I think in many ways this last year was something of a perfect storm. So what are the things that anchor people uh, to reality, right? Um, often it's community, right? And so it's being in community with people. And I think the pandemic um, this past year has so isolated all of us, right? And so rather than being you know, in conversation with people that we know and trust, we're spending more time online, we're trolling you know, Facebook, kind of doom scrolling Facebook and Twitter and and on these kind of message boards because we we've just, we're all, kind of hold up in our houses with, you know, and board. And so I think it has kind of done that. I think the other thing to say that has really paved the way here 
um, was particularly uh, Trump's attack on the media over the last four years, right? And the whole idea of fake news and this idea that you can't trust what we're getting, even from our best media sources, you know, from the broadcast uh, sources to CNN, to, um, for the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, you know, that, that no matter where it's coming from, uh, even our local news, um, that we can't trust it. And, and this idea that there's a conspiracy behind that to keep us in the dark about something is, is kind of easy to believe when the world seems upside down because of the pandemic um, and when we're isolated. Uh, and then when we have a leader of the country who is constantly talking about um, the media, who is supposed to be a kind of vanguard of uh, uh, trust in a democracy, right? They're the, th they're the people, they're the people who tell us kind of what's going on uh, in a way that we can kind of hold our political leaders accountable. But when that gets undermined, it leaves this vacuum, uh, right? And then I think into that vacuum, something like, oh, well, let me tell you what's really going on. Um, uh, and that uh, there, there's another source that can tell you you're being duped by all of these folks. But when we have that coming from the highest office in the land, um, it, is, it is really uh, something to be taken quite, uh, quite seriously. And I, I think that also kind of provided this opening uh, for, you know, another kinds of thing. And, and whenever I think in history, we've had these kinds of apocalyptic movements or even conspiratorial moments, they often are in times of social and cultural distress, um, right? And I think that's, I do think that the, the environment that we've been in is one that has been ripe uh, for this, kind of helped along by, um, you know, a president who was undermining the media talking about fake news. Um, and, and then I think in, in the context of a country that was changing quite dramatically and quite quickly um, all, around, uh, all around us and, and where white Christians found themselves less in the center uh, and being kind of, you know, moved from being kind of the dominant force to kind of one force among many um, in the country. So at first glance to what could be argued uh, a level-headed person, the concept and theories of Q are just comedic at, at the most innocent and psychologically unstable at the worst. Okay. There's probably, it could be much worse than that, but, but your research has found just how serious the influence of Q is on the American religious landscape. Why is that the case? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think it is, um, uh, well, a couple of things. I mean, I'll make this really concrete. I mean, not a few miles from my house um, uh, is the, the, um, the pizza restaurant um, that a, an armed gunman showed up at um, and fired shots in. Um, uh, because he was following instructions from Q and, 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 and was convinced that there was a, um, a pedophile um, uh, ring being, uh, being run out of the basement of this restaurant, right? I mean, there's absolutely no basis in fact whatsoever, but, but someone acted on it, brought a gun to the restaurant, fired a shot off, and luckily no one was killed, um, but terrorized the people who were, um, who were there. Um, you know, in Christian circles, I think, I was I was on with with, um, with someone else uh, uh, just earlier this week talking about this and um, and they they were not they were not a religious person and they basically said this they said well look um, if you if your worldview is based on believing in something invisible um, what else are you susceptible to believe in um, and, and I but I think that's actually too easy um, a shot here um, I, and, and I I think it's it's more, um, what's really at stake is something more uh, troublesome than that. Um, it's not quite so simple um, as that. I mean, the I think particularly in white Christian circles, one of the challenges that we're facing is um, white Christians are being asked to let go of this concept of ownership of the country, um, right? Um, as the country's changing, um, the country's gone from being 54%, you know, white and Christian, only 44% white and Christian today, just since 2008. Um, so that's been a fairly quick uh, movement. White evangelicals alone have law have gone from being 21% to 15% of the country during that same period. Uh, so there's a sense of loss, the sense of shift in the country. And what I would say is that that part of the appeal here has been, you know, when when you're faced with that kind of change, if the bedrock of your of, of your worldview has been, again, this thing about um, that, that America is designed to be and, and divinely ordained to be a white Christian country or a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant country specifically. Um, and, and you see that uh, falling away all around you. 
um, you kind of have two choices. I mean, you can face the facts um, uh, and, and, and kind of take in those changes, and that's going to mean rethinking this fundamental worldview, or, you know, you can start looking in some kind of, and, and really in some desperation. I think that's kind of a key word here, that, uh, that, that conspiracy theories tend to kind of have credibility at moments of crisis and when people are in some desperation looking for explanations of things that, that bewilder them. Um, and, and so I think that's part of what's happening here, that if you don't face the facts, then, you know, you, you are susceptible, I think, to spinning out all kinds of theories uh, that are some, in some way are going to confirm uh, this, this, this other worldview that no, actually, the country is a white Christian country, should still be a white Christian country. Um, and because and we, what we found and, you know, all the research is out there really confirms that these things go hand in hand. Uh, the QAnon uh, conspiracy theory goes hand in hand with a, a kind of a white Christian nationalism and goes hand in hand with anti-Semitism. Like these things are all wrapped together, right, as a, as, a, as a worldview. And so it really is about protecting a kind of white Christian ownership of the country um, and, and, and finding ways to explain it um, even when all the evidence around you, and maybe especially when all the evidence around you seems to be telling you, no, actually the country looks quite different than that today and, and is going to look quite different than that uh, uh, for, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, we'll get to it in just a little bit. I have some questions about the eerie similarities between this and Nazi Germany, um, which not a lot of people want to talk about. That seems very harsh, but they, they really do. You're a historian. We'll get to that here in just a little bit. Um, our news outlets are a microcosm of the duality of realities by which Americans live. And while many, uh, based on your research, feel like things are going in a positive direction, 58% of Americans polled in 2017, um, you know, uh, there are many that don't believe that to be true. Um, and you recently wrote uh, stating white evangelical Protestants, 43%, uh, Hispanic Protestants, 45%, and other Christians, 47%, are the only religious groups among whom a majority does not say that American culture has mostly changed for the better since the 1950s. How does the philosophy of Q play into the disparaging perspectives of America's direction among white evangelicals? Yeah, I mean, I think it often is cast with a sort of nostalgic tone, right? It's a retake the country, um, reclaim a past, um, you know, and, and again, in some ways, it's where things made sense, right? Where, uh, from a white Christian perspective, things things made sense. So I, I think that that's kind of all wrapped wrapped up in exactly, you know, what you're talking about. This, And, and there's it's no coincidence that, um, for example, Trump's slogan had this nostalgic ring to it, right? Make America great again. And uh, I also think it's notable that in the campaign, it kind of went by very fast, uh, but the official campaign slogan for 2020 was, for, for the Trump campaign was supposed to be, keep America great. Um, and he very quickly found that that wasn't resonated. Like that wasn't what people felt. What people felt was that original slogan, uh, which was make America great again, because it was a hearkening back to this kind of 1950s America. And, you know, we should just be very explicit about what that means. I mean, that's pre-civil rights um, era. Uh, it's it's uh, back to a kind of very gender uh, kind of hierarchy, men working outside the home, women being homemakers and having kids um, at home. Um, and, and you know, it, where there were whites only neighborhoods and whites, whites only sanctuaries uh, were the norm uh, among many white, white churches. So I, I think it is a, a kind of hearkening back to this kind of hierarchical worldview where whites were over non-whites, men were over women, um, and there was a kind of order uh, to it, right? And so this kind of chaos versus order um, contrast is something you'll hear a lot um, in those in those kind of QAnon things. You're, you're fighting to kind of restore, reclaim, uh, you know, it's, it's a kind of going back and, and bringing the country back to a former time where it made sense. Yeah, Keep America Great was also, you know, a line from uh, the Purge movie series. So I think that might have also been a reason why it was taken down as well. Um, we want to remind our uh, audience that you can offer some questions that we'll get to in just a little bit. Uh, but now would be the time to start contributing those questions so we can process them and be able to ask those later on. Uh, we do need to pause to tell you about one of our other annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. 
Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches and consultants and intentional interim ministers, the center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and as a trusted partner in ministry. Okay, um, we've all seen it before. Uh, the patriotic services around July 4th, Memorial Day weekend and Veterans Day. Um, some a bit more brazen than others when it comes to shooting spangled fireworks and flag displays on their stages. And still, you know, for many churches, there still remains that American flag in the sanctuary just inches taller than the Christian flag. Um, you know, for many, mm -hmm. their concept of Christian nationalism, which almost feels like a patriotic duty, uh, it, but it goes much deeper than, than just those examples. Christian nationalism was on full display at January's coup attempt at the Capitol. Jesus 2020 flags accompanied with Christian flag shofars, along with uh, gallows and zip ties and assault weapons were present. These seem like extreme examples for many, but how does this take root at the local level in the church based on your research? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's exactly right. I wrote a piece uh, for Religion News Service on January 7th, uh, the day after the, the riots at, at the Capitol. And the title was um, Taking the White Christian Nationalist Symbols uh, at the Capitol Seriously. Right. I think that, that we too. So I don't want to move too quickly past. Um, these were extremist examples, because, in fact, I think we ought to take them quite seriously that they were there. Um, and, you, you know, you there were in addition, you know, uh, to. Uh, really awful anti-Semitic tropes, like you know, someone wearing a uh, Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt um, uh, to, uh, or six million Jews were not enough, kind of abbreviations on their um, on their clothing. Um, th there were also, you know, numerous very large Confederate flags, right, that, that people saw marching through the Capitol. In fact, um, that cap the the insurrections at the Capitol accomplish something that the Confederate Army never was able to accomplish, and that is bringing the Confederate battle flag into the U.S. Capitol building. That was the first time that happened in American history. Um, so we should kind of note that, too. But alongside of all of that, um, you know, kind of white supremacy uh, uh, stuff and, and is uh, the Christian flag, Bibles, uh, crosses, um, you know, even in the evidence presented um, uh, in, in the impeachment hearings, this sort of five minute video at, at or this video at minute five is a gigantic white cross, right, uh, being carried up. And and if you look at the other video things, um, you know, not only was the Confederate flag carried through the breached chamber, uh, but the Christian flag, um, that one that you described, the white flag, it's a white flag with a blue canton in the upper corner with a red Latin cross um, in that in that blue 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 piece of the, um, of the flag was also carried along with the Confederate flag into the breach, uh, chamber. Now that's, you know, that's the flag that I grew up seeing on the platform, as you said, the kind of American flag on one side, uh, the Christian flag on the other. And, uh, if, if there are, you know, people watching who are grew up in Southern Baptist life, um, or as I did, uh, during vacation Bible school, um, we said the pledge of allegiance to the American flag. And right behind that, we said the Pledge of Allegiance to the Christian flag and the Pledge of Allegiance to the Bible, right? And so the fact that these things were carried together as part of this, I think we should take quite quite seriously the kind of easy juxtaposition of symbols of white supremacy and symbols of Christianity. I mean, those people weren't fighting each other. They were on the same team, right? Um, and, and taking that quite seriously um, as we go. And I, I think we ought to interrogate that. Um, what does it mean, right, to have these two symbols uh, sitting on so many and they're not just in evangelical churches. They're in many mainline churches as well. In fact, the the National Council of Churches um, uh, has you know has officially adopted that flag back at well the Federal Council of Churches did it in 1942. Uh, the National Council of Churches inherited that um, when they were formed as the official you know Christian flag. Um, but how those interplay in our in our in our sanctuaries, I think, are you know really important. You know, Stanley Hauerwas um, way back when. You know, it was pretty famous for saying like the, the most important thing Christian churches could do uh, to kind of help reform our theology on this front is to remove the American flag from our sanctuaries. You're a historian, and though books have been written about the decades of development of the merging of patriotism with the Christian faith, uh, but to the best of your ability, can you tell us how we got here? <laughs> 
And maybe, yeah. you know, obviously we could have a whole conversation about that. But for those that are trying to kind of wrap their minds around, how do, how do we get here? You know, I mean, honestly, I think that the, the most honest answer is that what we're seeing is the logical uh, end of the version of Christianity that landed on American shores with the first European settlers. Uh, now, we'd like to tell a story about religious liberty and religious freedom, um, but I think if we go back a little further and we realize that, um, you know, the, the the real engine, I mean, the, I think the thing that I think most white Christians know very little about and that every white Christian should know uh, something about is actually the doctrine of discovery from 1493. Um, that set us, I think, you know, most clearly on this course. And uh, it was basically a papal edict that said um, that if you were a European Christian um, and you are, were part of some exploratory effort and you landed on the shores of a distant land uh, where the, the people who lived there, the indigenous people who lived there were not Christian, that you had the authority of God and the church to seize those lands and to uh, dominate uh, and control those people in the name of Christianity and the European nation that you were a part of. Now, that's the interior logic of the European versions of Christianity that landed uh, in America, right, from the beginning. So the idea of, uh, uh, you know, seizing land, Native American lands, uh, the idea of, um, uh, you know, capturing people from Africa and forcibly bringing them in chains to uh, work as uh, enslaved people in this country, that very logic is is brought with Christianity um, from from the get go um, uh, uh, here. And so, you know, there's a way of saying like it, it has been there um, certainly from the beginning of American uh, Christianity um, uh, that we inherited from Europe. And and I, I we've never, I think that the troubling thing is I think that we white Christians have never fully dealt with that legacy. Um, it, it is that deep and that long. Um, and we've just never fully dealt with it. I mean, it, we kind of move from, you know, so we'll oppose, you know, we kind of move to be mostly opposing slavery, but not opposing white supremacy. Um, you know, we'll move away from segregation, but uh, turn a blind eye to mass incarceration or even support laws that that feed that dynamic. Um, and, and so, I, you know, I, I think that we're we're just due. Um, you know, I think James Baldwin talked about, you know, a bill coming due um, and that was going to be a very tough tough bill to pay. And I think that's, that's partially where we are. Y'all have done some research. PRI's recent survey with the Brookings Institute found that 70% of the country feared that white supremacist groups would be a source of violence following the election. What should these stats tell us about um, our present and our upcoming future? Yeah, you know, I mean, they're troubling. I mean, so partially that tells us that even before January 6, um, most Americans saw something like this coming and were worried um, about it. Um, you know, we also had, uh, you know, you, you mentioned kind of older surveys and kind of thinking about my role as a, a kind of public opinion researcher. You know, there, there have been moments um, this last year where, um, and over the past few years, where I would write a question because we needed to know the answer and I could not believe, uh, I was in dismay that we needed this question. Right. And so one of those questions was, um, uh, how, how much do you think uh, that, that the, the speech and actions of, uh, of President Donald Trump have encouraged white supremacist groups? Like the fact that I would need to write a question like that about a sitting president was just stunning uh, to me. And, and to come back. And when the answer came back uh, that a majority of Americans, um, and, and, you know, it, before the election, a majority of Americans, it was 57 percent. Uh, said that they believe that, that President Trump's uh, behaviors and actions have encouraged white supremacist groups. And by the time we get, we did we did a follow-up survey after January 6, um, and that number jumped to 62 uh, uh, percent. With but but here's the thing: with huge partisan divides, right? Uh, uh, that we that we basically have um, independents and Democrats believing that's true, and uh, nowhere near a majority of Republicans uh, believing that's true, and nowhere near a majority of white evangelicals. By the way, who's you know strongly supported Trump and gave him uh, about eight and ten of their votes in the last vote in both 2016 and 2020, still largely standing uh, standing by him. So I think this this great gap right in how we're seeing reality 
um, is deeply troubling, um, I think, for, for our future. Um, and I guess the last point I'll say on this is that, you know, the other thing we found is that the two political parties are increasingly um, moving apart from each other in terms of their composition, uh, their racial and religious composition. Uh, today, we have a Republican Party that's approximately two thirds white and Christian and a Democratic Party that's only one third um, white and Christian. Right. So these are two very different uh, views, really. And, and um, you know, if we continue down this path, we'll essentially have one party, um, the, we'll have a Republican party that's a white Christian nationalist party, um, you know, and basically everyone else is gonna be um, over here. And that, that's a deeply, deeply unhealthy place for a democratic society to be. Well, I do have to know there was a drastic shift from the 2016 election, to 2020 election, when it comes to white evangelicals voting for Donald Trump. In 2016, it was 82% of white evangelicals. And then in 2020, it was 81%. So that was, that <laughs> I was a very dramatic shift, very dramatic uh, shift there. Yeah. Um, right. You know, as I've, I've noted, you're a historian, you know, maybe you wouldn't classify yourself as a theologian, but as you, as you look uh, at these particular groups that have a proclivity to these things, how, how does the theology of a certain sect of American Christianity landscape have a proclivity to these types of influencers with a Christian nationalism or QAnon? Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, white evangelicals in particular have long flirted with, um, you know, what historically, I'll dust off my, uh, you know, Christian church history here, um, has been essentially Gnosticism, right? Um, this, this, which was a kind of proclaimed a, a Christian heresy, um, you know, uh, back in the day, um, it, because it had many of these same features. It, it was kind of reducing, uh, you know, kind of everyday reality to these great battles between good and evil. Um, it also had an element of secret knowledge that only the innermost circle, right, was privy to. So this sounds a lot like QAnon um, at the end of the day. So I, I, and I think back about, you know, uh, these things that, that um, I'm older than you. Uh, so I, I remember um, very much but these um, left behind novels, right, um, that were, these were New York Times bestselling books, sold millions and millions of copies, Tim LaHaye, um, uh, you know, kind of churn these things out for more than a decade. Um, and they, they were basically picking this up. It, it was, you know, you would, you would, there were every, everyday events were infused with a battle between God and Satan. Um, and, you know, you were engaged as a prayer warrior to be on the side of the angels and God against the, uh, Satan and, and, and demons. And that's the lens through which, you know, kind of common events were, we're seeing again. I think the 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 danger of this, of course, is that um, we always see ourselves on the side of God and righteousness. Um, it it provides. We're in the middle of um, you know season of Lent. We've just begun Lent. Um, it provides very little space for self critique, for self reflection, um, uh, and and for really seeing sin closer to home than over there. Um, and I, I think that's a deep, deep problem too, is that, you know, kind of, so I think even recovering some deep Lenten practices, you know, among Protestants that maybe don't follow the liturgical calendar, um, I certainly didn't in my Baptist church growing up, um, but um, I think recovering space for that um, and is, is a way, what could be kind of a way of um, inoculating ourselves um, against this too easy conflation with our side as the side of God and righteousness and that side is the uh, is is the devil and evil? Um, because in, in again in politics in a democratic society, if we move from seeing people as our political opponents to to being the enemies of God, um, you know we we've deeply undermined any sense of uh, of being a democratic republic. So I, I can't tell from your answer should should I keep the series of Tim LaHaye books on my bookshelf above me or should I <laughs> should I not? You can use uh, them as Exhibit A of how, of answering your question of how we got here. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, they're leather bound and signed. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. But uh, for, for many that grew up in the evangelical tradition, the, the purpose of the Christian faith as taught to them was uh, believe in Jesus and get to heaven. And it's almost the thought is uh, I'm saved. So let's just support whatever we want to and ignore the blatant contradiction to Jesus and the ideologies that we endorse. What's your take on what appears to be uh, the disconnect of the teachings and ministry of Jesus to the radicalization of Christian nationalism and QAnon followers? Yeah, well, we've always had trouble with this. I think if, um, you know, um, 
I mean, the, the Christian, the white Christian church in this country um, has made the teachings of Jesus compatible with all kinds of things. I mean, so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist, uh, the word Southern, right. And that, uh, and that title is, is a direct attribution to supporting uh, the Confederacy and supporting, uh, in fact, it was supporting slavery even before there was a Confederacy. Um, so the, the, you know, the, 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 the founding of the, Southern Baptist Convention was 1840, or was 18, the break was 1845. It's actually the same year that the Methodists split into, into Northern and Southern uh, and Southern factions. And, you know, if you go back and you read the sermons uh, from both the Methodists and the Baptists uh, in the South, um, there's a Jesus there that's very, you know, that, that not only is compatible with slavery, but demands its existence um, in the service of a, a a, a godly vision of what human society should look like. I mean, it is like outwardly praised. So, so that white Jesus, you know, in 1845, um, was a Jesus that that compelled white Christians to enslave other human beings on the basis of the color of their skin. Um, so, I, I think we got to wrestle with this. Uh, it, it's it's a little um, too easy to kind of trot out um, a phrase like incompatible with the teachings of Jesus. I think it, it, we got to kind of take um, our uh, kind of take our own history seriously and see how we've warped that um, understanding, right? We, we, we've kind of invoked a version of Jesus that's perfectly compatible with white supremacy. In fact, we've done that for most of our history. I think that's the thing we really have to swallow. Um, and so if we're going to do something different, if we're going to talk about uh, a Jesus that calls us to something different, um, you know, there's going to have to be some real work uh, on our Christology. Uh, really, and, and to put it in theological terms, to, to reconfigure and to reject uh, these other versions, uh, you know, these other interpretations of who Jesus is and what Jesus demands uh, that so easily, you know, sat uh, in, inside of white Christian circles. I mean, when you drill into it, it's a very simple thought on my end, which is we just, we don't take Jesus serious. You know, uh, Jesus for many white evangelicals is just a stepping stool to um, the gateway of, of eternity and you know the salvific acts of, of a crucifixion or resurrection are all that matters and everything that happens before that is just you know incompatible with um, with the way we want to live our lives um, and that's that's a hard message that all of us we can all find all areas of our life in which Jesus teachings can be incompatible um, for sure. De denominationalism in the United States has been on a, a downward trajectory for, for decades now. Southern Baptists are the leading uh, declining group. Um, when you look at the incidents like the Capitol coup and the support of Christian nationalism, QAnon, within many mainline white Christian churches. Now, I would say QAnon is not as prevalent. People are a little bit more quiet in their support of these things, but Christian nationalism certainly is a bit more yeah. forthright. What kind of effect do you think it's going to have on church decline? Yeah, um, well, you know, I, I think that we've been in a period, as you said, of, of decline. Um, I gave you the kind of numbers earlier. Um, and, you know, we we have seen it um, kind of stabilize at where we are at about, you know, 44 percent of the country is white and Christian now. 15% of the country's evangelical, um, and about 15%, by the way, are white mainline. So the, the mainline and evangelical groups are, are basically the same size uh, today. The last couple of years has been uh, fairly stable, but um, the, pu the future um, doesn't look like very stable. If you look, for example, among young people uh, today, and you look at like older, um, uh, older, older Americans and compare those two groups, uh, Americans over the age of 65, about a quarter of that group is white evangelical. Uh, but if you look at Americans under the age of 30, uh, that number is eight. Um, only 8% are white evangelical, right? So just from the oldest Americans to the youngest Americans, white evangelicals have lost two-thirds of their market share. And, and, and they've lost it, again, mostly among these younger uh, cohorts. And I mean, so I think we've got actually um, a testimony um, with people um, kind of voting with their feet uh, you know, right in front of us, um, that, that, that for many young people, um, this vision of a church that is um, wrapped up with ownership of the country, uh, that is complicit at best um, and proactive at worst in upholding and sustaining white supremacy, uh, that has staked out um, pretty harsh positions um, around gay and lesbian 
uh, members in, in their midst in our communities. Um, this is, and, and has really pledged itself um, to um, not only to a party, but in these last four years, in many ways to a person. Um, you know, this is not a church uh, that, that many young people are going to sign up for. I mean, e any one of those things, um, you know, runs pretty far against um, the values of Americans under the age of 30. Um, so, you know, uh, H. Richard Niebuhr um, talked about um, a kind of internal and external witness uh, to the church. Um, and the internal witness is kind of the stories that the church tells about itself. Um, external witness is stories that the church kind of gets about itself from, from the world. Um, and, you know, one of the things I would say is that, um, I mean, young people today have delivered a pretty serious indictment of white Christian churches by leaving. Um, you know, here. And it, it, the, the reasons are complex, but certainly partisanship, um, uh, kind of a partisan allegiance, um, anti-science, anti-gay, um, and, uh, and kind of in defense of white supremacy, these are all things that um, kind of smack as inauthentic um, to, to young people. We just got time for uh, one question from our audience, um, which is, uh, as you indicated earlier, this movement seems to want to return back to the 1950s, which included women being subservient in the household and workplace. So why then are so many women part of this movement? What, what seems to be the appeal? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, uh, this is, I think, part of the um, thing that I think had many people scratching their heads in, in 2016, right? Um, that, that white women voted for Trump. Um, they didn't vote for Hillary Clinton, right? Even when they had a, um, a, a, president, a, a female presidential candidate um, in front of them. And, and what we have found really in the data is that gender uh, tends to be a weaker um, divider, a weaker supporter on issues like this, um, that, that things that basically it's race, party, uh, and religion um, that really are much more powerful um, predictors of where where people are going to be. So the 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 gender divides um, are not what you would think when you look at many of these attitudes around um, white supremacy, Christian nationalism. I mean, they're they're there uh, with with men being more likely uh, to be in that camp, but um, uh, but they're not as big as as you might think. Um, so there is a kind of way in which um, I mean, women have been brought into um, you know this patriarchal. Uh, kind of, uh, yeah, kind of hierarchical and, and patriarchal um, worldview. Um, and one quick thing, I, you know, I, I think about um, a great book um, uh, Kristen Luker wrote um, back, uh, really about motherhood and the politics of abortion, um, where you know, she was basically kind of talking about this kind of women's support for um, uh, a, a kind of pro-life uh, stance, and that she found that it was really about, um, somewhat about abortion itself, but it was really about conflicting conceptions of motherhood um, and, and that that fit, right? A kind of mothers being at home, that kind of role fit in a kind of worldview. And, and I think for, for, you know, for many women, uh, particularly evangelical circles, that that still holds some, holds some sway. Final question uh, for congregational leaders listening or watching, you know, what word of, of leadership do you give them as they seek to navigate spiritual formation around the challenges of Q and Christian nationalism? Yeah. Uh, well, again, you know, I, I mean, I, um, I would say if you want to get at the root of it, um, it, it these are symptoms of a deeper cause, uh, right? Um, that, that of deeper, deeper illnesses. Um, and, and so I, I think really to aim at the root of it, we really have to aim at white supremacy and this, this, cause, cause underneath Christian nationalism is this idea, um, you know, that again, it's a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant country, um, QAnon stuff and good and evil is about kind of reclaiming that same kind of vision. And the data does show that again, these things are tied together. QAnon is highly predictive of uh, white Christian nationalism and white supremacy. And it's very connected to even anti-Semitism as well. Another aspect of white supremacy. So I, you know, I would say like, um, we need to tackle it at the root. Um, and I, I think the root of this really is, um, you know, this, this vision that, that if you're white Christian, particularly if you're Protestant, um, you have a privileged place in this country and the country is designed to benefit you um, really at the expense of others. So I think, uh, um, you know, I think about things like, um, you know, Christian ideas, of, you know, it really is about equality, hospitality, um, and I, and I think, you know, if we could kind of go back to, this sounds kind of simplistic, but, um, 
I keep dr getting driven back to, you know, if, if white Christians would commit themselves to just telling the truth and loving our neighbors, um, as, as simplistic as that sounds, but, but it would be revolutionary if we could do that because it would involve telling the truth about our complicity uh, in white supremacy um, and the loving our neighbors part would get us to um, really doing something about that. And, and the, there would be great healing, I think, uh, outside of white Christian circles, but here's what I think is really at stake and that QAnon really brings to the fore. I'll end with this. Um, what it really brings this to, to light is a real sickness inside of white Christian churches um, and a kind of mental illness, um, if you will. Um, and, and I think if we really want to get ourselves um, back to health, and I, I'll credit uh, James Baldwin here for really helping me think think in these terms. I mean, he, he talked about white supremacy as inducing a kind of madness uh, among among whites, right? Warping our sense of reality. And so, to put this in Christian terms, you know, if we want to get into um, a healthier view of reality, um, a and a healthier view uh, relationship with our African American brothers and sisters, and 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 even a healthier uh, a relationship with God, um, we really have to tackle uh, the ways in which white supremacy has warped uh, our personalities and warped our ability to see reality and 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 and, and made us susceptible, I think, uh, to many of these uh, desperate theories um, that really are about propping up something that we know we should never have had in our grasp in our hands in the first place. Well, before we go, we need to uh, let you know about one more of our annual sponsors, uh, McAvee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAvee School of Theology offers doctoral and master degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by Nationally Research University. You can visit their website, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their program and scholarship. Uh, we also want to let you know about the CBF podcast community that you can join through the CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. For a few dollars a month, give you the opportunity to uh, receive books from uh, some of the people we have on. You could even join me for an interview, um, or hopefully if we have General Assembly next summer, uh, to be able to part of that VIP experience with the guests we bring in for the podcast. Well, I want to extend a word of thanks for those watching and adding your great questions and apologies that we weren't able to get to all of them. Um, if you want to stay connected with Robert, you can follow his work at PRI.org or follow him on Twitter. Of course, go out and purchase White Too Long wherever books are sold. Robert, uh, thank you for your continued brilliant work to bring uh, into view the reality of American Christian landscape. And your work is bolstering a catalytic change within many of our churches and demographic movements. Um, so thank you for, for your good work. Oh, thank you for those our, kind words. I'm really happy to be with you. All right, folks, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want uh, to learn more, you can subscribe to CBF on uh, podcasts on all the major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode uh, on your favorite social media platform. Uh, be su uh, supportive of our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program, and check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Mm -hmm.